If you haven't checked out my new channel yet, Donovan Dread 2, the links are below in the description and in the pinned comment. So if you're a longtime listener and still haven't subscribed, let me be the first to say, welcome to Dread's Army. Now let's get to the stories. Hey there, Donovan. I'm from upstate Wisconsin, and I've got a story that I think you'll want to hear and maybe help me out. I don't know. I don't really know how to fix this. I'm a doctor, and I work in a town of maybe 700 people. Our closest neighbor is an active army base. Sometimes I'll get visitors from there if their hospital is too busy, or they'll send a nurse or two over to help me out. The point is, I've got a good working relationship with that base. I have a patient who I'll refer to as Sharon, and she's a military wife. She came to see me once because of a health emergency. At the time, the base was too far out of reach. She's been my patient since then. I had her for a little over five years now. The thing about Sharon is that she's a pretty level-headed person. She doesn't make a big deal out of things. So when she came to me and said that she was concerned for her husband, Cole, I took her at her word. She said that Cole had gotten the flu and wasn't recovering like he was supposed to. He had been bedridden for three weeks. She took him to the VA hospital and he got released the next day even though he wasn't any better. This immediately seemed strange to me. I trusted that VA hospital, and honestly, it was one of the better ones I'd seen. It wasn't like them to shirk their duty like that. And worst of all, my hands were tied. I wasn't Cole's primary care, so I couldn't write him a prescription. I couldn't do anything except give Sharon some tips and ask her to keep me updated. I felt terrible. She came back two days later and said Cole had recovered to full strength. I was as confused as she was. For him to make a turnaround like that, after being sick for so long, was bizarre. I told her to keep an eye on him, just in case. Then Sharon called me around midnight on my emergency number. She said that Cole was awake but unresponsive. We did a video call on my cell phone, and I saw what she meant. He was sitting up in bed with his eyes open. But he didn't react when she talked to him, touched him, nothing. He was ignoring her. He was a serious man and he didn't play jokes like that. It was like he didn't see her at all. I thought he had a mental break of some sort or something in his brain had gone wrong from the flu. Sharon had tried calling the VA and been blown off each time. I told her to drive Cole to my office and I would do all I could. They didn't even make it off the base. Sharon was turned back when she tried to leave. We were actually on the phone at the time because she had put me on a video call and left me on mute. I couldn't see much because of the way she hid in the phone in her purse, but I heard what was going on. A pair of officers argued with her and wore her down, even though they could all see the shape Cole was in. There was nothing I could do. The next day, one of the VA doctors came to my office. He was accompanied by a soldier, but that guy at least had the courtesy to stay in the waiting room. The doctor asked me about my relationship to Sharon. He wanted me to turn over all my files on both her and Cole. I didn't have anything the VA hospital wouldn't already know about. And I had nothing on Cole at all. I told him so. He didn't seem convinced. There was nothing I could give him without violating a patient privacy law. That alone made his visit pointless. We both knew that, but I think he tried to bulldoze over me just to prove that he could. After that, I was scared to contact Sharon. I didn't want to get her into any more trouble with the army. Still, I didn't want to leave her on her own. 
Another two days passed before she was able to call me again. She said Cole had returned to normal and acting like nothing was wrong. He didn't seem to be in any pain, but as soon as the sun went down, he'd go quiet again. I told her she needed to time how long he was functional. We had to figure out if he was awake for a set number of hours or if it was really linked to the nighttime. By this point, I was pretty sure this was some sort of medical experiment. Sharon was probably thinking the same thing, but neither of us risked saying it over the phone. I couldn't think of any way to help her. Another couple days passed. When Sharon called me again, it was to say that Cole had been admitted into the VA hospital. She didn't know whether this would be the end of it or if he'd come out even worse. I didn't hear from her for weeks after that. No one else from the Army came to my office. I got a letter from Sharon after a while. It wasn't much. She just let me know that Cole was okay and had been reassigned to a base in Illinois. All of this happened over the past fall. I haven't seen either of them since September, and I don't know how they're doing. Sharon asked me to get in touch with some of her and Cole's family, and I have, but they don't know much more than I do. Thanks for listening. Maybe Sharon is out there listening, too. I don't know. If they're out there, and I hope they are, I hope they're okay. I was driving through Niagara Falls, Canada. It's an easier route than going through the States. Less traffic. Speed limit seems to be not as high, too, you know. Easy driving. I have a Ford Flex, a big SUV van hybrid deal. So I packed it up, threw the kids in it and the wife, and headed out. We left early, around 3 a.m. I live outside of Detroit, so it took some time to go through the city and over the bridge. The city was pretty much empty at that time, even the freeway. It was nice to see the city without people for once. Kind of eerie, too, but quiet and peaceful. I rolled down the window a bit and just took in the early morning air. It was nice not to have to fight traffic, and there wasn't much construction being done. So, none of the route was closed off or barreled off with construction barrels. The wife and the kids fell back asleep pretty fast. The kids, as soon as we backed out of the driveway, pretty much. My wife, after we went through security and over the bridge. Luckily, we weren't one of the random cars they stopped and searched. I stopped at McDonald's in Windsor, right next to the bridge to get some coffee for the road. And then I jumped right onto the provincial freeway heading out. It was great. There was hardly any traffic in the city and barely a soul on the highway. I could have counted the amount of cars I saw in one hand. It's just a nice easy drive, and I'm not a fan of driving really. I've never really liked it. Don't get me wrong, I'll do it, especially on long trips like this. I just don't like traffic. I don't like the congestion, the stopping, the going, all of that. I like to take in the scenery, not to be bothered with stress and weights and people laying on their horns. I think most people were probably in agreement when it comes to that stuff. It's hard for some people to stay awake on the roads like this, though. They tell you to watch out for other cars, and especially sleepy truckers. Keep vigilant and all that. I had the family, the coffee, so I was okay. There's also not very many lights on some of the more open stretches of the highway. Near towns and cities, you're okay, but on open stretches, it's dark and hard to see at times. The first rest stop we hit after an hour on the highway, the kids stayed asleep. Me and the wife took turns hitting the bathrooms. Me especially after all the coffee. There's like no one really around. And yeah, those stops can be kind of creepy. And sometimes, you know, stuff happens at those rest stops. Anyway, 
I walked around the parking lot and around the car, stretching my legs after being in the seat for so long. The air was nice and cool for once. It had been pretty hot that week. There were a couple of semis parked in the dark section of the lot. Two other cars seemed to be travelers like us, a family and an older couple. The rest stops are usually pretty brightly lit to attract the eye from the road, I think. After I walked around a bit more, I finally got back into the car and we headed out onto the road. It was another maybe half hour, 38 minutes tops, barren highway, nothing but open countryside on either side. I go to yawn and something dark moves across the road and I hit it. It's not deer season, it's June. What the hell did I just hit? That was my first thought. I don't know why, maybe because of the size of it, but again, it wasn't deer season, so what are the odds? Anyway, I slow down the car and get off to the side. My wife wakes up. I tell her that I think I hit something. Maybe a deer, maybe a dog, I don't know. I look in the rearview mirror, and I don't see anything. It's still pretty dark out. There's not really any lights. Anyway, I decide to get out of the car and use my phone as a flashlight. I stop though because it's dark and it's early morning. I guess I kind of just froze waiting for something to happen. It's kind of a silly reaction, but it happens. And you feel kind of ridiculous. I guess I was waiting to hear something, maybe. Or wait for something to get up and move. I'm not really sure. But I just stood next to the car for a few minutes. Before I started to move super slowly back to see what I hit. I didn't see anything at first. But about maybe 10 feet from the car... I see a weird pale sack in some of the grass at the side of the road. I look around, shine a light, and don't really see anything else. I walk up closer, and the sack gets bigger. And then the folds kind of move, and I stop. This thing shoots out. I mean, it really moves. And I drop my phone. I go to pick it up and follow where it's moving. And I see arms and legs shuffling. And this thing is taking off for a group of trees. I'm just standing there in shock, trying to make out what in the hell is this thing. What I thought was a pale-like sack cloth is skin, I think. And this thing is traveling on all fours. I didn't get a good look at its face, but I saw these big black circles. Maybe its eyes. It was moving so fast it was hard to tell. I thought about going after it. I even moved up closer and down towards the trees. It didn't make any noise, but I could hear it moving through the brush. But I stopped myself thinking about my kids and my wife in the car. I just stood still, flashing my light near the trees trying to see something. I could hear it moving after a while too. It just got quiet and still. I heard my wife call out to me, but it took a few seconds to register. I just got back into the car and sat down. I didn't know what to think or what to do. I just told my wife it was nothing and started the car back up. It took maybe two days before I could tell my wife. She said she believed me. I don't know. I don't believe me. It was the strangest experience in my life. I still don't believe it at times. I spent this last summer working as a camp counselor near Rocky Mountain Park in Colorado. Well, I wasn't really a counselor, more of a camp aide. I helped the actual counselors maintain the camp and keep an eye on the kids. I don't want to give any names because... I don't think the camp deserves any negative publicity for what happened. I had been attending this camp for the better part of a decade and knew some of the other kids and folks who worked there very well. I spent most of my time with these guys as I did my own parents. Every summer, like clockwork, I was shipped off to camp for all of July and half of August. I didn't really mind, though. 
The counselors took really good care of the kids, and every day was kind of like a new adventure. Canoeing, hiking, and horseback riding was the norm, not to mention the nightly feast and campfire songs. It could be kind of cheesy at times, but everyone was always having a good time, so who cares? This summer, I was finally old enough not to have to go to camp, but I knew they were always looking for aides, and I didn't really have any other plans, so I took a job with the camp, knowing I was pretty much getting paid to do all the cool stuff I like to do anyway. It was about the end of the third week when this bizarre event occurred. The group I was with, made up of 14 kids, two counselors and another aide, had went out for the day for an extended hike. Now these kind of activities were for older kids at the camp, around 13 or 14, so you could imagine the noise level of this rambunctious caravan. We had left at 8 a.m., hiked five miles and stopped for lunch preparing to turn around and head back afterwards. The kids were pretty ambitious that day, so the five miles was a good bit deeper than we would normally go. It wasn't really a big deal, though. The counselors knew the area like their own living rooms, and the spot we stopped at had a cool spring which the kids took turns swimming in. I was sitting not too far away from the kids in the spring, eating lunch and just chatting with the other aide, when we heard this sharp crack echo throughout the surrounding forest. All the activity in our little group stopped for a minute, and we heard it again followed by another crack, this time from a different direction. After the third crack, the oldest counselor in the group, we'll call him Benny, started scrambling to get the kids out of the spring and dressed. Me and the other aide were confused and a little unnerved to see him acting this way. Benny was an older guy, real outdoorsy and totally comfortable in the forest. Me and the other aide jumped up leaving our lunch sitting on a log and rushed over to Benny to figure out what was going on. Then we heard it. It was a deep bellow, not unlike a bear's roar, but I could have sworn that it was almost human. Whatever it was, it was answered by another bellow from where the other cracking noise had come from. Benny was screaming to run at this point, and shouted for me to take point. I grabbed a few nearby kids and yelled for the rest to follow me, moving fast back the way we had come. As we ran... I looked back a few times to see if we had everyone, but couldn't stop long enough to tell. I just hoped that Benny and the other counselor had gotten a head count. We ran nonstop for a good 10 minutes, until I heard Benny from the back of the group calling for a halt. I was wheezing heavily by now. A full run through the mountain trail isn't like a jog on a paved street. There's roots, rocks, and a dozen other things that slow you down. And frankly, we were lucky nobody had fallen badly enough to get hurt, or broken an ankle. Me and the other aide got it together enough to do a quick head count, while Benny and the other counselor went off to the side to talk. After confirming all the kids were with us, I went over to join Benny and the other counselor. I managed to catch the tail end of their conversation. I heard the other counselor saying to Benny that they should be a hundred miles away from here, and Benny responded they must have moved further east, and that they've claimed this territory as their own. The rest of the conversation was cut short by a roar from nearby, followed by a thud and a scream coming from the main body of the group. Something had tossed a small boulder into the mass of kids, nearly taking the head off one of the boys leaning against a tree. There was a hysteria throughout the group, and the kids almost started running off in separate directions when Barry shouted commands and pulled everyone back together. The other camp counselor got the kids moving in a unified pack. As we all started running down the trail, I saw Benny cutting off from the group 
All alone, he was yelling and slapping two sticks together like he was trying to make as much noise as possible. The rest of that trek back to the camp was one long blurry collection of running and stumbling and some infrequent stops. A few times the kids asked me what happened and where Benny went, but I didn't have answers for them. Near the point of exhaustion, we finally made it back to camp. The kids were all ushered to their cabins, and all the aides were assigned a cabin to sleep in and watch over for the night. We were given strict orders to not, for any reason at all, leave the cabin or let the kids leave the cabin unless a camp counselor physically entered the cabin and told us we could. We were even given a few buckets in case we needed to answer nature's call. When we woke up the next day, we were finally allowed out of our cabins. We were called for a general assembly. Benny had made it back to camp sometime in the middle of the night. He had cuts all up and down his left side of his body, and his arm was in a sling. He stood next to the camp director as he informed us that due to unnaturally aggressive bear activity, any activities outside of the camp would be suspended until further notice. The excitement died down over the next few days. Even without leaving the camp itself, there was still plenty to do, and since these kids' parents had paid for the full summer, we finished out the next few weeks. I got a nice paycheck, and then we went back home. About a month later, I received an email from the camp director, telling me that next year's camping season was canceled. It would reopen the following year in a new location about 80 miles south. I live in a suburb of Los Angeles, right by a recognizable body of water. I'll leave it at that. The lake was a nice place to swim. It was a nice alternative to the salty ocean water and noisy beaches. I was a swimmer in high school and college before I joined the adult world and became a working stiff. It was a nice way to de-stress after a difficult day at the office. My town has a local legend. It was always just a silly joke that no one took seriously. Since I was a kid, I was told by teachers and adults that the lake was home to a terrifying sea serpent. It used to terrify us as kids, but it became a draw to the lake. Tourists flocked to our small town, and it became an expensive resort town hoping to see the serpent. The locals seemed to adopt this legend as enthusiastically as the tourists. My swim team even had the same sea serpent logo as the touristy t-shirts. It was a point of pride for us. We were the sea monsters. We're ferocious and we swim faster than you. That is always what it was to me. A silly story and a campy mascot. Any actual query into the existence of this creature was always seen as kind of dumb. It was like a conspiracy theory. Fun to talk about, but not that deep. Anyone who read that deep into this type of story was seen as a troll or making fun. Nothing too serious about it. The day of the incident was the hottest day on record. It was peak summer, and the humidity coming off the lake made it very uncomfortable to walk around. When I arrived at work, the unthinkable happened. The air conditioner was broken. It had to be about 95 degrees at my desk, so a few co-workers and I found our way to a favorite nearby coffee shop and rubbed elbows around a tiny table. After what felt like an eternity, we made it to 5 p.m. My co-workers wanted to get drinks, but I decided to head home. I had enough of being in such proximity to all of them, and I really wanted some space. I was also dying for a swim. I said goodbye and went home. I changed into my bathing suit and got my bike out of the basement. I set out around the lake and made pretty good time. Slowly, the suburban sidewalks turned into a dirt path 
until I got to my usual swimming spot. It took some bushwhacking off-road, but the view of the city was beautiful, and it was a spot that was entirely unknown. I took my shirt off and left it by my bike and prepared for the swim. The water felt amazing on my legs, and I found myself immediately diving straight into the cool water. Relief flooded through me instantly. That thing I was craving all day felt so good. I finally cleared my head and started to relax. I was bobbing up and down a bit in the water at first, and then I started treading water. I should have known something was off when I heard the frogs. Usually this was a quiet spot, but this evening it was like a symphony. It unnerved me slightly that they were so loud. It made something feel different about today. I don't know why, but the lake felt impossibly large, and I had never been smaller. Still, the water felt nice and I was dying to get my blood flowing. I started to work on my crawl stroke until I was almost at the center of the lake. I treaded water and began to float on my back. I closed my eyes for what must have been a second. I swear on my life, something swam past me. I know well the sensation of a swimmer going past you, and this felt the same. But it was fast and big. I righted myself in the water and looked around. Nothing. All was quiet. I took this as my sign to head back to shore, so I began swimming again. While crawling, I took breaths under my right arm, just as I was taught. As I neared the shore, I saw something. It looked like a huge eye, the eye of a fish. In my panic, I flipped around and righted myself once again. Nothing on the surface. I looked down. Something gigantic. Much larger than me, swam 20 feet under my legs. I looked hard in the water, trying to make out its features. Whatever it was, it stopped some distance away from me. It had this long body like a snake, and the head of a dragon I had seen on a television show. The water around me was still warm from how fast it passed me. Then in a moment, it dipped into the darkness of the lake. A few days have passed since then. I don't remember getting home, but I must have gone fast. I've been going about my days like normal, but... No swimming. I began to do some reading to see if anyone had experienced what I had seen, or anything like that. That's how I found your show. I'd be so happy if you read this online. Maybe give me a little clarity to what I saw. I don't know when I'll swim again, but I'll be careful when I do. Thanks for watching, and let me know what you think of these stories in the comments below. Don't forget that you can listen to my episodes on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. I try to upload every single day on this channel and on Donovan Dread 2, where I release shorter content. Same great encounters, just a little bit shorter. Also, if you want to see crazy encounters captured on trail cams, then check out Dread Captures. It's part of the Dread Network, where we go over live footage of very strange encounters that are sent into the Facebook group or videos that are circulating on the web. Last but certainly not least, check out Lilith Dread. She releases the same great content daily on her channel. You'll find all of these links below. Thanks and take care.